At the top of Calvario, the hermanos lift the cross from his shoulders and rest it on the ground. Amadeo straightens, an unbelievable relief, and the word good thrums in his head. Good, good, good. The hermanos help him down, position his arms along the crossbeam, his feet against the block of wood that will support his weight. Amadeo spreads his arms and looks up into the wide sky. There is nothing in his vision but blue. As they bind his arms and legs against the wood, lines once memorized surface. With a word, he stilled the wind and the waves, but the wind skates over his body, drying his temples. This is Dominic Preziosi. You just heard Kirsten Valdez Quaid reading from her new novel, The Five Wounds. It tells the story of a year in the life of a Mexican-American family, chronicling their struggles as they confront teenage pregnancy, unemployment, and addiction. It's been hailed by writers like Karen Russell, Phil Cly, among others. And today, we're lucky to have Kirsten here to speak about her novel with Commonweal Managing Editor Katie Daniels. That's coming up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Katie. Hi, Dominic. So we're really excited to have Kirsten here with us today. I know both of us were looking forward to the arrival of this novel to the point where we were competing with each other, I think, stealing pre-press editions from one another before it actually came out. But you actually got to read the whole thing. So why don't you set up this interview a little bit for us? Of course. So it was a pure delight to talk with Kirsten. She's a writer whose work I've long admired. She's the author of a short story collection, Night at the Fiestas. And so we were really excited to talk with her about her newest project, which is her debut novel, The Five Wounds. Interestingly, The Five Wounds actually builds off of one of the short stories in Night at the Fiestas. It opens during Holy Week as a man named Amadeo Padilla prepares to play Jesus in a Stations of the Cross reenactment, only to have his pregnant teenage daughter unexpectedly arrive at his door. So the original short story builds to its dramatic conclusion over the course of Easter weekend, But this only provides the opening scene for The Five Wounds, which then goes on to explore life in the entire Padilla family, Amadeo, his mother Yolanda, and Angel, his daughter. I think you can read The Five Wounds, of course, as a reference to Christ's wounds on the cross, but I think it's also a reference to the woundedness of each of the novel's characters. The novel sort of charts their progress, seeking either acceptance, redemption, or a path forward in life. It's a complicated and really engaging family saga, and I absolutely loved reading it. All right, that sounds great. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your talk with Kristen. Why don't we take a listen? The Five Wounds is, of course, your first novel, but it's also an expansion of one of the short stories in your debut 2015 collection, Night of the Fiestas, what made you want to revisit this particular story? So, yes, the, the novel did begin as a short story. The, the story opens during Holy Week, and my protagonist, Amadeo, has been chosen to play the role of Jesus in the Good Friday procession. And he hopes that the role will transform his life. All of his plans are disrupted, however, when his daughter, Angel, shows up at his doorstep unannounced and enormously pregnant. At the end of the short story, Amadeo asks that real nails be used in the reenactment of the crucifixion, and he has this moment of epiphany where he sees his daughter 
clearly. But even after the story was published, I kept wondering, so what happens the next day? Sure, he's had this epiphany, but what happens when Amadeo wakes up in his same bed, in his same life, and his daughter is making eggs noisily in the kitchen next door, and she's about to give birth? And what happens after the baby is born? So the novel grew from there. That, to me, is one of my favorite parts of the book. Each character in the book is longing and searching for something, whether it's redemption or future or acceptance within their family. And your novel beautifully charts their progress as each character tries and fails and usually fails again to make peace with each other and also with themselves. The scene that you mentioned where Amadeo requests to be crucified on Good Friday It's a particularly dramatic moment in the novel, and it really illustrates this dynamic for me. I'm wondering if you could read a passage from this scene? Sure, yes. Amadeo has heard a rumor that many generations ago, a penitente playing the role of Jesus asked to actually be crucified. And so he gets it into his head that this is the way to do the very best performance possible and that this will help him transform his life. At the top of Calvario, the hermanos lift the cross from his shoulders and rest it on the ground. Amadeo straightens, an unbelievable relief, and the word good thrums in his head. Good, good, good. The hermanos help him down, position his arms along the cross beam, his feet against the block of wood that will support his weight. Amadeo spreads his arms and looks up into the wide sky. There is nothing in his vision but blue. As they bind his arms and legs against the wood, lines once memorized surface. With a word, he stilled the wind and the waves, but the wind skates over his body, drying his temples. Then the hermanos lift the cross, and Amadeo's vision swings from sky to earth. Upright, his weight returns. The cross sways as the hermanos anchor it in the hole they've dug, packing dirt and stones around the base. Below him, on the distant road, a few glittering cars wink behind the trees, oblivious. He sees distant mesas and pink earth, pinon and chamisa, the air tastes of salt. Angel stands before him, holding her hands under her belly, the nails, the nails. He is not sure if he says it or thinks it. The hermanos pour rubbing alcohol over the wood and Amadeo's hot hands. The alcohol burns cold and clean. They hold the tip of the nail against his palm, and he feels it there a moment, light as a coin, and then they pound it through. The pain is so immediate, so stunningly distilled, that Amadeo's entire consciousness shrinks around it. He is no longer a man, only reaction, outrage, agony. He imagined the pain spreading through him like silent fire, unbearable in the most pleasurable of ways, like the burn of muscles pushed to their limits. He imagined the holy expansiveness that would swell in him until he was finally good. But instead, there's only this confused, searing clamor, out of which rises a voice he only dimly registers as his own. The other, give me the other. His voice sounds out over the heads of the onlookers, rolls down the slopes of Calvario. There's so much intensity, so much detail here. And one of the things that I really love about this scene in particular is how well it captures, in a nutshell, Amadeo's character. I came to think of him as a Peter the Apostle type who wants very badly to be good, but he's always undermining himself. 
The day that he's crucified also happens to be his daughter's birthday, which he completely forgets in his excitement to play the role of Jesus. So he's this really admirable character on the one hand, but he's also very deeply human in a very relatable way. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how you think about creating the complexity of characters like Amadeo. As both a reader and a writer, I'm so drawn to flawed characters. And poor Amadeo is... (laughs) (laughs) Such a flawed character. He's an alcoholic. He doesn't pull his own weight at home. He's been an absent father. He takes absolutely no responsibility for himself or the choices he's made in his life. So there there is a lot to judge him for. And I did judge him as the writer Hmm. in the beginning. And that was a hurdle I had to get over as I was writing his character. What endears me to him is that He does want to be better. He does want to transform his life and be a better father and be a better son. I think you're exactly right. His efforts are completely misplaced for a really long time. And he just doesn't see a lot of the obvious opportunities to be a better person that are are right in front of him. But he continues to try. And whenever a character wants something and tries for something, doesn't matter what it is. Then I'm rooting for him. And what Amadeo wants is so large and abstract. It's to be better, to transform. And because it's so large and abstract, his efforts fail. But the whole time, Angel is right there in front of him, asking him for very specific things that she needs. She needs him to be present. She needs him to come to the open house at her her GED and teen parenting program. And She needs him to see her, ultimately. And it takes Amadeo quite a long time to understand that her presence there isn't a distraction, but that it's the point. And she is offering him a very clear path toward being a better person. The story ends with an epiphany. And I know there's a lot of pushback against epiphanies in stories now. And I like a good epiphany, but I think the problem (laughs) with life is that often we need so many epiphanies. One is not enough. We need it again and again. Right. I like, too, how you mentioned judging your characters as a writer, because I think the characters felt most real to me when they were sort of, they, they can be very judging of themselves in a way that is both aware and not aware at the same time. It felt to me like there was both being held in tandem as I was reading, which I really appreciated. I mean, I think judgment is, it can be a really tricky thing and, you know, judging other people in life. But as a writer, judging my characters, it always gets me into trouble. I might start a story from a point of judgment and wanting to punish these characters and wanting them to get their comeuppance. But that never results in a good story. And usually through revision after revision, it takes a lot for me to get past that judgment. But it's only when I'm able to set that aside and allow the characters to be fully human and for me to be willing to sit in their consciousness, even if it's, you know, without judgment. It's only then that the story can improve. Something that really stood out to me was the way that religious rituals and the rhythm of the Catholic Church's liturgical year all have a really important role in the five wounds, obviously from the title 
which refers to the five wounds that Jesus suffered during his crucifixion, but also the structure of the novel. It's divided into sections based on the liturgical calendar. You move from Holy Week through ordinary time and then Lent. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role that ritual plays in the life of your characters and maybe in your own life too. Yeah, so the story took place over Holy Week. And when I decided to see what happened after Good Friday and the resurrection, it it was pretty clear to me early on that it would be a single year in the life of this family, that it, it would go from Holy Week to Holy Week. You know, I think rituals are really important because they mark time and they give shape to our lives and they offer us the opportunity to reflect on what's important to us. When we reflect on, say, our lost loved ones on the anniversary of their deaths, we've, we carve out this moment to think about that person, to relive our time with that person, and to keep them alive in us. And obviously, memories of that lost loved one will, will descend at all different points of the year. But there is something on anniversaries that's really special. And we can't help but reflect on how we've changed and how our relationship to that grief has changed and to that person we love. And so when we participate in rituals that are connected to stories, like the rituals that take place during Holy Week, we're invited to re-examine those stories. And I think depending on where we are in our lives, different details will be more salient to us. With the story of the crucifixion, you know, which characters do we identify with in this moment? Is it Christ who's being jeered at and who's facing his own death? Is it his mother who's watching her son be tortured and is having to face this terrible loss? Is it the thief who's let go? Is it one of the people who, you know, is jeering at him? And so I think our conclusions are going to be different and our understanding of that story is going to be different depending on where we are in our lives. The same story is never the same because we're different. Something that you said struck me, this idea of re-examination of a moment in a way that's probably pretty similar to the process you must do as you rewrite each draft and re-examine each character and your relationship with them. Do you have any like writing rituals that you think of as you're working on your short stories or working on your novel? Or do you think of any particular aspects of the writing process as having a ritualistic type nature? That's a really good question. I, I suppose I do. I I like to write in the morning. I have a ritual of locking up my phone and turning off the internet. And I get my tea and I set it on the coaster. And these are all little rituals that let me know that it's time to write. And they help me work my way into the work. But yes, I, I think you're exactly right about the revision process. I revise and revise and revise and revise. It's an endless process. But each time I'm reading for something different and I'm trying to approach the story differently and ask, okay, so what would this character be thinking in this moment? And have I allowed this the secondary character to be fully present on the page? So each revision is an attempt to attend to some other part of the story. Your short stories often explore what you call the human edifice of the church. So it's a flawed, messy institution. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the the brotherhood and the penitentes and I guess exactly how Amadeo finds himself hanging from a cross on Easter Sunday. 
Sure. So the tradition of these brotherhoods of penitentes in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado is a really old one, and it's still alive today, although the numbers are much smaller now. Long ago, when the villages were far-flung and isolated and not every village had a priest, these communities were established to fill some of those needs. So they functioned as mutual aid societies, they buried the dead, and they marked important days in the liturgical calendar for the communities. And in the 19th century, membership roles could be in the hundreds for a village, and they were politically influential, too. And their worship can involve physical acts of penance, self-flagellation, and the like. And it's a tradition that, you know, if you know the area you're aware of, even though the numbers of people who worship in that way are much smaller. But I've always been so moved by that form of worship because it's always struck me as this deeply empathetic way to worship, this longing to actually feel some of what Christ felt as he faced his death. In researching these brotherhoods in the 19th century, I read that there were rare undocumented rumors of actual crucifixions. The penitentes were painted in articles in, by written by East Coast Anglos as these like bloody zealots. And, you know, that that was not a part of it, although there were some rumors of cases of actual crucifixions. And when I read that, I wondered about the motivation behind a choice like that. What depth of belief and need would lead somebody to to request that, to, to choose to do that? And that was the question that, that inspired Amadeo. You've talked before in other interviews about how your family lived in northern New Mexico for many generations. And even though you yourself moved around a lot, growing up. It's an area of the world in which you set a lot of your short fiction. And now The Five Wounds is also set in the New Mexico desert in this tiny hamlet called Las Panas. And the town and its institutions are slowly fading. Many of its young people are dying or are moving away. How do you think about preserving the memory of a place? And how does setting a multi-generational family story there allow you to think through that? My own sense of family and my own sense of my place in the world really is multi-generational. I am very close to my grandparents and great aunt. I've spent a lot of time with them. And so much of my fiction is about preserving memory. When I started writing, I was writing to preserve the stories they told me and also to fill in gaps in those stories because there were always details that they couldn't or wouldn't tell me. Mm-hmm. And it was only through fiction that I could make sense of them. The first story in my collection, Nemesia, is based on a family story on the murder of my grandmother's grandfather and the way that trauma persists in the family. But as I wrote about Las Penas, I, I was thinking about the little towns where my grandparents were born. And I was thinking about how so much of this history and so many of these traditions are dying as the older generations die. It's been a few years since I visited those towns with my grandparents, but we used to go with some frequency. And when we last visited the town where my grandmother grew up, it was almost 75 years after she'd left for Santa Fe. 
And it was really a bittersweet experience. On the one hand, she was really glad to be back and glad that I was interested and asked so many questions. And I think she was glad to tell me her stories. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the place was so different from what she imagined. Mm -hmm. So many of the buildings were crumbling or missing. And there was this, there was this real sense that we were experiencing multiple versions of this town at the same time. We were experiencing what was in front of us. We were experiencing the one that was alive in her memory and the one that she brought to life for me through her stories. And they were all layered on top of each other. And, you know, so there is a certain urgency and in my writing uh, about about this material because I do feel like it's being lost. I want to talk a little bit about the woundedness, if you will, about each character and uh, and how their role within the family can help or exacerbate that woundedness because it's so intimate, right? The harm that families can inflict on one another since after all, no one knows you better. But at the same time, in the novel and in life, being part of a family also allows all of these opportunities for grace. Did any particular family member illustrate that dynamic for you as you were writing the book? I love how you put that and how you describe the experience of being in a family. I think every writer has a set of themes that she returns to again and again. And for me family is one of my big obsessions. And you're exactly right that our family members can sting us and we are vulnerable to them in ways that we're not vulnerable in our lives outside of our families. And there's also that deep love and shared history and shared understanding that come from being in a family. And I think that's often the well that we return to as sources of strength and healing, even when a family is really messed up. You know, Amadeo, I think, is probably a really good example of that. He is almost a grandfather. He's an adult, and he is so profoundly immature. He's self-involved. He sees himself as the star of the story, and he's unable to see other people as anything other than supporting characters in his story. And he's still a child, and he's dependent on his mother for financial and emotional support. He thinks of himself as a child. She thinks of him as a child. Everyone thinks of him as a child, including his daughter. But Angel also makes demands on him, and she insists that he grow up and support her and be a father. She's impatient with him and makes these demands, even as she doesn't truly believe that he'll come through for her. And he rankles against these demands, but that's how he is able to grow. So we've talked a lot about the spiritual growth of your characters. What did you learn about yourself in the course of writing the novel? Once a woman rear-ended me in a parking lot in Santa Fe, and I was so mad at her. And I went home and started a story to punish her. She was so snotty <laughs> to me. And I was like, you rear-ended me. And I started a story in my collection called Canute Commands the Tides. And I was really passing judgment on this woman. And when 
As the writer, if I'm judging a character, if I am wanting them to get their comeuppance and learn a lesson and be better, then I am outside of them and I am above them as the writer. And that just doesn't work. You can't, I can't write a good story from that position. It only works if I'm able to be inside the character and just fully sink into their consciousness. And at that point, then I'm inside of them and I'm experiencing the world through their eyes and I'm on their side because I am them. So all of that judgment has to fall away. And it's only by fully embodying the characters that that the characters can be fully real instead of these paper dolls that are placed there for me to wag my finger at them. Is there a moment in the writing process where you can tell when that's happened? Like for you mentally or like what you're seeing on the page, you're like, okay, I finally gotten it. I finally nailed it. Well, you know, there can be a lot of energy in the writing when I'm feeling superior to a character. My passing judgment on a character, I can zoom along in that mode for quite a while. But I think I always know that it's not working when I'm in that mode. And certainly, you know, if I make it to the end of a draft and revise it, and I may think that I'm embodying the character, I may think that I'm feeling empathy and I've set aside judgment. But then if I give my draft to a reader, I I have really good readers and they always catch me. And they'll say, you're not allowing yourself to be the character. You're not allowing the character to be fully alive Mm -hmm. and, and fully human. And Grace Paley has this wonderful quote that I keep on my desktop. Everyone real or invented deserves the open destiny of life. And I love that. And those are words that I write by and try to live by, but (laughs) it's it's harder in life. Kirsten Valdez-Quaid, thank you so much for joining us on the Commonweal podcast today. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Kirsten Valdez-Quaid's new novel, The Five Wounds, is available from Norton. You can read a review of The Five Wounds from Valerie Sayers on our website and in the May issue of the magazine. Kirsten's essay on reading during the pandemic appeared in our December 2020 issue and can be found on our website. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.